Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, I am like, you know, really excited because um, this guest today is someone that I not only respect and admire and who we rarely get to talk to out there, but somebody I have great love for because this is one of the real people. Um, This is Dr. Pat Love. And let me read a little bit about you before I introduce you and bring you on, Dr. Love. Dr. Pat Love is known for her warmth, her humor, her practical and research-based wisdom. And by the way, I love the warmth, humor, and the practical research-based wisdom. Her blog posts, her YouTube clips, her training, her books, her workshops and online courses have made her a popular go-to relationship consultant. Dr. Love's work has been featured on TV, in cyberspace, in popular magazines, but she's also a distinguished professor, licensed marriage and family therapist, and a longstanding clinical member and approved supervisor in the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Dr. Love, and yes, that is her real surname, has authored or co-authored over six books, written numerous professional publications, and has developed multiple training programs, including Love Education. Her work has taken her around the world to help people understand and improve their relationships. And in case you're not aware of uh, one of the more important books that Dr. Love wrote that kind of got everyone's attention, she wrote a book, I think almost 20 years ago, called Hot Monogamy. And welcome, Dr. Love. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you, Rob. Talk to me, Dr. Love. What's going on in your life? What do you have to teach our people? Bring your wisdom to our podcast. (laughs) You know, the good thing about what I do, what we do, is that the research keeps rolling out. And that's what gets me excited about the field. I, you know, I often say I will, I will claim to be dysfunctional given the way I grew up, but I'm not stupid. So if you tell me a better way to do something, I'm inclined to do it. And the curiosity, about research and how to not only improve my own life, but the lives of the people I love and the and the clients and the people listening and reading, you know, what are our materials, you know, that motivation is fueled by new information. So when I see something like, for example, a a research study just came across my desk recently that said, if your partner doesn't support you during the tough times, 
then all the niceties that he does or she does on a daily basis won't balance that out. Now, that's the kind of information that gets me going. And I start thinking about all the ways that is true. And, And of course, any research that I quote and you quote has to match our clinical experience. So right. when it rings a bell, when I realize you're right, if so, you know, if you only have a fair weather partner, it's just like fair weather friends. You know, your good friends are the ones who was there to bury the bodies, there for those graduations that went on for hours in 103 degrees. You know, I mean, people who you know that show up. The friend is the person who shows up. Yes, showing up and showing up not just for the fun times, but the tough times. Dr. Love, we always uh, were taught in school that it was the relationship with our clients that was the most important thing. No matter what method we used, it was how comfortable we made them feel, how how supported they felt, how much we felt, they felt our empathy. And when you talk about the research, now we look at brain science and we can see how our relationships matter. And the relationship that we build with our clients is the most essential thing. And so to me, it seems like so much of what we believed is simply being proven true. Yes, that is. When I look back, I did an internship in my undergrad psychology program. And when and I had no skills. And I remember the clinical director from the mental health center. I went in there and he said, now we're going to do these intakes. And then if you find a client with whom you feel rapport, you'll take them as a client. And I went, what? What am I going to do? And he said, talk and listen, talk and listen. And I had clients who kept coming back and I didn't know strategy one, you know, but I knew that empathy you're talking about. They felt you're caring. Yes. And, and I think I just want to uh, reinforce what you what you're saying. And it's the key to relationships. I mean, it's not rocket science in a way. So, you know, Dr. Love, um, this or I'm going to call you Pat because we're friends. And if that's yes. OK with you, you bet. You know, I deal with a population that's in a lot of pain, often about betrayal and, you know, violations of relationships. And, you know, I'm in that field and that's, and this podcast is about that. But one of the questions that comes up that I think you could really be most helpful with for this audience is the following, you know, um, many of my couples struggle to regain any kind of trust after portrayal. And then they really struggle to wonder, I mean, the partners often wonder, how can I be sexual with him or her after the cheating? And I often find that, and I want to say this in the right way, that if, if sex, love, and relationship addictions, if these are intimacy disorders, one of the interesting things to me after doing this work for so many years is that I can teach people how to stop acting out, and I can teach them how to make amends, and I can teach them how to heal the betrayal. But developing healthy sexuality is something that some of these couples have never had. And some of them have been together for 15 or 20 years, and they've either just stopped having sex or or they were having sex where they were completely disconnected. There was no relationship. How do you bring couples together sexually? And really, when, when there's been so many years of distance, Yes. Well, you know, you're really, it's interesting that this question that you're posing, because it really is an answer to that question that I did the research with Joe Robinson to write Hot Monogamy. Because in a way, even though I was in a relationship that where there wasn't a betrayal in that particular relationship, that where I was questioning, where did my sex drive go? I had been betrayed in a way as a child, just 
you know, going back to the abuse. So when I, one of the motivations for writing this book was to, tr- to answer that question, how do you get back this desire? How do you get back the passion? How do you get back the trust? How do you feel vulnerable enough to create intimacy when there's been betrayal in your history, no matter how far back or how recent it was? It's basically the same process. And I want to say that it's no easier as a sex addict myself, married 18 years, you know, it's not easy to move into relationship sexuality when your norm has been intensity and strangers and porn. And a lot of what I find is that my clients, the, the, the men in particular, they understand how to get se- to sexuality through being horny. But they don't know how to get to sexuality by being willing. Yes. Because I'll have a man with his wife for 20 years say, I don't want to, I don't want to sleep. You know, I don't, I'm not turned on by her. I've been with her 20 years. And I said, well, that's right. You're not going to get turned on to her like you are a stripper. Yes. But there might be a different place if you're willing that your love might come from. And, and I think you might have some things to say about that. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that because when I looked at the research, one way to understand our own desire, because what you're talking about is what I refer to as the desire to desire. Do you have the des- desire to desire? And uh, and if you don't, if, you, if you're stuck in that place where, well, I used to feel desire, what's wrong with you, meaning my partner, that I don't anymore you know well, wait a minute let, so let, me, let me say that in colloquial terms so basically what you're saying is honey you know i used to find you attractive but since you gained that weight and since we had the kids and since i'm not i don't find you attractive anymore in the same way is yeah. that kind of what you're saying you make up at your you make up at your partner's fault or there's something wrong with the relationship or if i were only looking elsewhere or we did one more unusual technique or there was something <laughs> exotic you know you make that up but mm-hmm. i say you know, now there are two pathways to desire. There's the autogenic and psychogenic. And what that means is some people walk around with a body sex ready that, you know, I often, <laughs> I often say, you know, it's like, a you know, I, the only prerequisite for sex is this, is my heart beating? So if uh-huh. my heart is beating, you can probably, you know, turn me on, get me to have sex or, you know, whenever, wherever, because that person walks around like a, I say it's a gas stove versus electric stove. You just turn it on and it's hot. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and, and then there's the psychogenic group of us. And this is two thirds of women. And, and, and almost a third of men who really this and this sounds like an excuse and it's not because physiologically this person cannot feel desire. They can be horny, but they won't feel the desire to, or even the desire to desire to have sex unless their stress level is lowered. They feel close to the partner. They feel connected. And the, you know, and basically their environment has to support that relaxation. And they've got to start with their brain to, for the desire to gravitate any lower. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You're saying this, Dr. Love, because I, I often talk Talk to and look at what people are saying on the hookup apps, Tinder, Grinder, all of that stuff. And usually they're saying things like, come get me, come, you know, I'm ready for, you know, all of that stuff. But once in a while I run into someone, and it's always unusual to me when it's a man who says something like, 
I like sex, but it isn't as much fun unless I really feel connected and love the person or really. And I think that's a man. Well, men say that. And, 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 and basically that's why men are so embarrassed, even ashamed to admit this about themselves. Well, most of us aren't. I mean, the majority of us are more object focused, more visual. Yes. yes. Women, women tend to be more relational, but I, I'm shocked when I hear about the men because I think, well, gosh, I'm teaching these guys how to be kind, loving, nurturing. And there are actually some people already out there like that. <laughs> well, also, you just think of the names that we call men that are more the sexy brain instead of sexy body. I just call them sexy brain, sexy body, you know, and and think of the women that are high testosterone women, the sexy body people, women who, who walk around like the gas stove, you know, that we can't even repeat the names that they get called. Mm-hmm, and and right. so we have these stereotypes and we don't all fit the st- We're somewhere on the continuum. But when I I wrote hot monogamy. We came up with a formula, and it is this P equals, which stands for passion, equals S to I, two sexual beings joined by intimacy. If you want wow. passion, if you just have two sexual beings, you can have hot sex, crazy sex, adventuresome sex, married sex, maintenance sex, whatever. But you will never have passion without intimacy because intimacy implies a knowing of the other. And and the good thing, you know, you talk about adventure and intensity, you know, there is a limit for most of us how many chandeliers we're going to hang from, you know, how many, <laughs> how many positions you're going to see these thighs in. I mean, you, you there, there's a limit to, to it. Well, at a certain age, at a certain age, it's just embarrassing. Yes, it's embarrassing, but there's no limit to intimacy as exploring one another, getting to know one another. There's no limit to that, you know. So I think it's really important to know there are two components to this. And so when you're asking, how do you get back the desire? Well, it may start in your brain and not in your groin. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. I love you, Pat Love. I have to tell you that because I often work with women who say um, that they just, you know, they, or actually I work with both sexes, actually both genders who freeze up sometimes in their dating uh-huh. and they'll be, they'll be, you know, they'll have a month or so of getting to know someone, having wonderful sex. All of a sudden they don't want to be with them. Don't find them interesting. Don't, you know, trauma or something has been triggered in them. Yeah. And what 90% of them do is they just walk away. They yeah. move away. And, and I say to them, hey, have you ever thought of saying to that person you're going out with, you know, today I feel a little distant, which would be intimate, which would be, oh, yeah. I couldn't do that. That might them, make them feel like I don't want them. Well, that's okay because you don't right now. Yes. And that would be, and if you told them that, maybe you'd feel more comfortable and maybe you would start to feel more comfortable with them. And I kind of want to bring that up because there's this, uh, this kind of thing about I've got to act a certain way or look a certain way and I don't want my partner to think of me as this or that. And that's not, and that's the opposite of intimacy. Yes. 
That's true. Oh, it's so true. And, you know, if we had to say what's what's one of the strongest predictors of happiness and longevity in relationships, you know, there are certain predictors that will predict you're going to get a date, you know, being funny, (laughs) being attractive, being generous with your money, you'll get a date. Okay. All right. You can get, so dating, (laughs) dating behavior is one thing being sexy, sexy looking, you know, available that's dating behavior. Mating behavior is a very different set of criteria. Does he get along with his family? Is she, does she have a circle of friends? You know, mm-hmm. is she, would she be, uh, you know, comfortable to live with? I mean, there, it's a is, different. Is he going to be, is he going to be good with kids? He's going to be good with kids. Does he even mm-hmm. want kids? I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. mating, you know, so that's mating behavior. But then there's a third set of criteria that has to do with, you know, because of, of staying together or longevity. Because falling mm-hmm. in love is easy you do it without falling into in lust is easy you do it without thinking about it staying in love takes a different set of skills but 80 percent of couples who break up say we still love each other so love isn't enough so what is it and one of those predictors is emotional regulation mm-hmm. and that's the ability to cheer yourself up and calm yourself down no matter what's happening so when you feel like running away you stay and you mm-hmm. voice it you put it, you know, you say that was then, this is now, you know, you do whatever you need to do that you regulate yourself. And when you, when you know you're, you're, you're going to be sexual, sensual with your partner, you block off that time and you put yourself in the mood and you know how to lower your own stress and you mm-hmm. practice thought stopping or whatever it takes to say that was then about my partner's behavior. This is now. This is a woman, a man who has done the three steps that builds trust, which is number one, say what you're going to do. Number two, do it. And number three is repeat steps one and two. They've done that. They've done that. And so this whole idea of regulating your own emotions can mean I've got to, if I don't know what turns me on, how's my partner going to know? You know, mm-hmm. and, and you and I know that that romantic love and those early days taint every relationship because it appears that the desire will always be there. It appears mm-hmm. that it'll always be erotic and passionate and wild. And you have all this walking around sexual energy, even the sexy brain person, that person Mm -hmm. that really has to lower their stress, feel connected. They automatically feel connected. They say things like, I know you know me better than anyone has ever known me. You're so easy to talk to. Time stands still with you. I love who I am when I'm with you. I can't believe how alike we are. You know, They say all these same things Mm -hmm. and that little short period of time, and it can last a night or up to 18 months to two years. It nature gives you an opportunity to meet, mate and procreate. And you got lots of sexual energy, but and bond when that, yeah, and bond. And when that post rapture stage comes, that next reality stage, you go back to normal. And for many of us, normal means I got to use my brain. Mm hmm. I think what you say also makes me think that when I'm in that love romantic early stage, that those of us who have trauma, those of, those of us who have abuse and those kinds of issues, it kind of fades away. We don't see the other person, we're in rapture. But once they become real 
and they have zits and they fart and yes. you know they they then it then it gets scarier don't you think well also the nature of infatuation is that it lowers your defenses so you are in a way without the defenses that saved your life psychically as a child so you know this is why non talkers talk talk during infatuation non touchers touch and so mm. literally all you can do is see the positives and and move toward that person to get more contact that's dopamine it's serotonin i mean it's all those influences oxytocin oxytocin and make is an amnesic it makes you mm -hmm. forget that oh mm -hmm. this guy is you know been married four times have seven children has never worked you freeze it <laughs> and even if your friends tell you that you say but he's not that way with me he won't be that way she would in fact the fact that she got in a fight with that you know police officer well you know but she was provoked <laughs> you know you, may, you cannot process negatives in that state and your your desire level is so high just a little touch. I mean, you can get as thrilled from thinking about a kiss as kissing your everyday partner, you know, for 30 minutes. Well, this is, and it's a good thing that doesn't go on forever because nothing would get done. Well, we would <laughs> die from sexual exhaustion for one thing. I mean, but you know, Dr. Love, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, like that's when they feel like they're not in love anymore. You yes. know, when that goes yes. away. Yes. And we don't have a lot of messages for people that that is actually the initiation, the beginning of what love could be. Yes. I, I, I say, yeah, it's the, I love you, but I'm not in love with you syndrome, which is normal. That's, that's, that's the most common phrase for post-rapture, which means, okay, this means you are finally at the threshold of true love. And couples who've been together for a long time will tell you vintage love, tried and true love, whatever you want to call it, makes infatuation pale by comparison that they will tell you there comes a critical place, even if you've been so, you know, thrilled over and over with that high of sexual capture and, and, you know, and that wonderful deliciousness of infatuation, even though you've, you've done that and it was wonderful and thrilling. Once you get to this vintage place, couples will tell you this is more delicious it's more wonderful and it will move. They get moved to tears. I just did a video series where I interviewed happy couples. I mean, I think I cried. They cried at every interview and they, cause they, mm -hmm. they talked about things they hadn't talked about and they were talking about it for the first time on camera, but it moved them to tears. And we're talking couples together, 55 years, you know, 37 mm -hmm. years. So, I mean, you look at them, you don't go, Oh, well, yeah, but it's, not infatuation. You go, I want that. You know, it's, it's so interesting you say this because um, my, my husband and I were at a diner in Arizona and I remember seeing all these older people because there's a fairly age gap in Arizona, a lot of seniors and retirees. And I think we were in an area where there are lots of them. And we, we looked out the window where we're having a, a, you know, a cup of coffee or something. And we could see a number of couples sitting around this sort of picnic area. And all of them kind of had green shorts and white shirts and caps and, and you know, little, little flippers, shoes. And honestly, if you were from a distance, you couldn't really tell who was the wife and who was the husband or who was the husband who was the, or, or wife, wife, husband. Because after a while, we start to be a lot alike. <laughs> and I used to look at that in horror, you know, back in the 90s. Oh, that's codependence. That's enmeshment. That's a Now I have a different view. I think, well, that's what I want. Yes. I want to be so close to someone that you can barely tell us apart by the time we're 80. Yes. You know? That would be great because that's 
there's nothing wrong with that kind of interdependency, pro-dependency leaning, leaning into each other. It's why many of us who, who it hasn't worked out like we wanted are willing to try again, because when you see mm. it, you long for it, you want it. You want someone who has your back, who, who can finish your sentences. You have this private love language and these inside jokes and, and who mm-hmm. really care in, you know, where you are and how you are. You want that. We mm-hmm. long for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's in our genes. It really, even a recluse dreams about people. Well, it's also in the research that that those of us who have long-term pair bondings, deeply rooted communities live longer, communicate yep. better or healthier, feel better about ourselves. You know, I mean, we are meant to be in relationship and Sometimes people will get on the, you know, on the line with me and they'll say, well, I just don't want to have a relationship. I, I've just tired. I think, well, what about your friendships? You know, you yeah. can deeply invest. And I had a woman recently say, you know, I had a lot of molestation, a lot of abuse. My husband just left. I, I'm really wanting to be touched, but I don't want to be sexual. Go get a massage. You can get some of these needs met in relationship, even if it isn't romantic, but not alone. Not alone. Yeah. Tell me, Dr. Lowe, I want to ask about your new book. I mean, not about your new book, but about your old new book. Okay. Because I want to talk about your work. Yes. Okay. Um, you wrote this book called Hot Monogamy at a time when there was basically no internet. There were no apps. There was no online dating. I, I think back at the time, you might have sent a newspaper or a personal ad and you got a number and then you had to check your phone every day to see if anyone called you for a date. <laughs> right. So how, I, I hear rumor that you may be taking this project on again and saying you want to look at the book again. Is that true? Well, it's coming out in a different form. You're right because don't don't we all? I think we all build on what we've learned. God, I hope so. And, and <laughs> I've never been the type of person who develops a model and then teaches it to you know a thousand people the same model over and over and over. I admire people who have their own model or their own you know shtick or whatever and do it over and over. I get bored with myself. <laughs> I'm far more interested in what. I don't know than what I do know. And, and it's a little bit of, of a disadvantage um, it professionally, but whatever, yeah, in writing this, this new book, it'll, it'll be, you'll probably hear my voice. Hopefully you'll hear my same voice, but it'll mm. just be replete with all the new information and research that I can find because it just continues to flow out. And I think if there's one gift that I have, it's that I'm half, my, my girlfriend says it this way, I'm halfway between between genius and stupid, which means I can read very complicated, detailed information. But when it comes out of my mouth, it's very practical, down to earth. Mm-hmm. You know, West Virginia, where I grew up, it is very, very basic. You know, there's mm-hmm. no pretense. <laughs> But that's a gift. I mean, that's that's a gift. And I, I mean, I think the best of us bring that gift to be able to take complex ideas and make them understandable yes. because not all of us are in the, you know, I don't want to be in my marriage to be a psychologist. I just want some direction on how to have better sex. Yes, exactly. And, and that was the impetus for writing Hot Monogamy because like so many people in the beginning of the relationship, I had lots of sexual energy and then it went away. And I grew up in an age where we equated sexual desire with love. And I thought, well, do I not, we not love each other anymore? Is there something wrong with me, him, us? You know, where do I go with this? I had no way to explain why I had little or no sexual desire. And it was was the pe- that personal pain that was part of the motivation for mm. finding out 
what the research had to say about this 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 whole idea of desire. You know, desire wasn't even a stage until you know Kaplan gave it to us. She said desire is a distinct stage. You can you can want to have sex, and and it's funny because over over the years when couples come to me with sexual issues, I often say, well, you know, magic wand time. If you had a magic wand, would you both would you be having sex as a couple? Yes. You know, mm. I mean, and, and then how often would you have it? And they were rarely ever very far apart, you know, twice a week, mm-hmm. twice a month, whatever they say, you know, seven days, whatever. They, they were the same. It's just it wasn't what we want. It's how do we get there? And the desire was the issue. How do I then get the desire to desire? And I will have to tell you one story because I think this bears repeating that I I had read Barbara Sherwin's study that correlated this this you know was way back then in the 90s that had correlated testosterone in women with sexual desire. Well, that really piqued my interest. And I went and I got my testosterone tested. And I remember the day I was sitting in the doctor's office and she showed me my results. And she said, Pat, you don't have low testosterone. You have no testosterone. Wow. And it was like that moment the light came on because I always knew I was a sexual being. And so then, of course, my next thing was I want testosterone. Well, that was way back before we were fam- real familiar with biodegradables and bioidenticals. And, and she was she gave me cream and you rubbed it here and you rubbed it there, but it did nothing. I mean, mine was like dead in the water, you know. So I went back to Sherwin's study and I looked at what she took and gave her, gave her patients, you know, for the study. And I saw that she gave them a shot in the butt, one cc straight testosterone in the gluteus maximus once a month. And mm. I went back to that doctor and I said, "This is what I want." Well, she didn't stick want, it in there. <laughs> yeah, she didn't want to right. give it to me, but she did. She said, "I'll give it to you for ninety days," because she knew I knew enough doctors I was going to get it. I am here to tell you, it changed me. I looked. I I thought about sex. I dreamed about sex. I looked at men in sexual ways. I looked at their butt. I looked at their crotch. I would. I mean, I was making sexual innuendos. I mean, I was. <laughs> my voice ch- changed. You so, know? Pat, you're really, you're really in part, and I really, I think this is what you're saying. It means a lot to me. I, I'm reading all this stuff about you know all all the time quarterly. Why isn't there a female Viagra? Why can't we get yes. women to get it up with a pill? And the first thing I always think is, well, that isn't necessarily what drives women to sex is being aroused. It has right. more to do with connection for many of them. But you're also saying something I never see in these stupid, why isn't there Viagra for women, which is, have you had your hormones checked? Exactly. Exactly. And here's the thing. I'm not advocating go out and get it, although I know women that do, because I wasn't going to have acne for anybody. But here's, oh. you know, you know, I have my limits. But here's what I learned from that. All the subtle cues that I had related to my sexual desire were screaming at me under the influence of one cc of testosterone. So once I realized what the cues looked like, felt like, and sounded like, I would fan the flames of Mm -hmm. desire, but I had to do it myself. See what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yes. 
Well, that's what you talked about regulating yourself. Yes. So I had to. So now if I even think about patting my husband's butt, I do it. You know, Mm. if I (laughs) know he's getting out of the shower and I even think he's in there naked, I follow up on it. I don't wait for the screaming eagle, you know, in my ear to what was there because it's just on a different scale. Well, you're really, in my mind, speaking to men too, because when men don't, when men aren't seeing their wives or husbands or whatever, when we're not seeing the body parts looking like we want to look at, when you're not looking like a stripper, we just say, well, I'm not interested. I'm not aroused anymore. You're not. And, and the opportunities have stopped being taken. Um, I, I stopped patting your butt. I stopped kissing you over dinner. I stopped. And then all of a sudden I'm surprised that I'm not looking at you thinking you're sexy. Yes. So this implies that sex takes some work if you want to have a healthy sex life. Yeah. You got to be proactive. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got to, and you've got to, first of all, for the, for the sexy brain person, the person who has to have connection and feel relaxed. And, and by the way, that isn't an excuse. I mean, stress is a you know, is a vasoconstrictor. So if you aren't relaxed, the blood can't get to your penis or your vagina to, you know, engorge or lubricate, whatever. So it's not, just me saying that flippantly. If you look at the physiology, it's really there. But you've got to be proactive enough to know what relaxes you. Is it a hot mm-hmm. bath? Is it a you know meditation? Is it taking time to read a romance novel? Whatever it is, novel. I mean, you have to figure out. Or is it that intimate time with your partner that you have to block off the time? You know, I remember a man in my office. I just wrote this story in a book. Is that he he come in because their presenting problem was they weren't having sex and she wanted sex and he didn't have it was a heterosexual couple finally when we peeled away the layers what he finally said to her was if you want sex at bedtime you got to let me know by six because once my (laughs) energy goes down everything else goes down with it uh-huh. It was just that he then had to take the time and to save the energy. You know, here's the thing. The sexy body person, you know, if my husband drives, you know, we're on a long trip going, you know, somewhere. If he drives 12, 14 hours a day, we get to a hotel. The more stressed he is, the more he wants sex. For me, after 14 hours of driving, <laughs> this is the last thing because I've got to work for another mm-hmm. hour. I, you know, if I want to be crass, I can think of it that way. Do you think I have have sex? Absolutely. Do you think I, because you think I want to drive 14 hours the next day? You know, so I've learned that we have to block off that time and I have to make time. And and this is why, you know, we call it chore play. Doing chores can yes. be foreplay because it blocks off the time for the sexy brain person to relax, you know, focus get in the mood, you know, regulate your sexual emotions, regulate your desire. I would say for men, this is a particularly important discussion because we really, I, for the most part, and so many of the men I've worked with, we don't, unless we're feeling horny and we're looking at something that's just like porn, we're not really that turned on once, you know, when we've been with someone for a number of years. And, and, I, and that whole thing about willingness, you know, am I willing to get in bed with you and stroke your hair? Am I willing to kiss you? I'm not feeling horny, but am I willing to massage? 
massage you to get out some oil. And guess what? I got aroused. Oh, what a surprise. Oh, and now we're having sex. Oh, and I wasn't expecting it. And you know what? That was amazing. But I wasn't thinking I was horny when I got into it. And it's by taking those actions with a partner of of creating desire. That's really what it's talking about. Hey, Dr. Love, how do people reach you? Because we're going to run out of time in a minute. I want to. It's very easy. I've got the easiest email in the world. Pat at patlove.com. No caps, nothing. Pat at patlove.com. And what about websites? Where can they find your work, your books, your. www.patlove.com. Oh my God, you are easy to find. Easy to find. <laughs> and do yes. you still do workshops and stuff like that? I still do workshops. Uh, I'm At present, I'm trying to put everything I know online to make it available for everybody. You and me both, kid. I really admire you. Dr. Pat Love, what a gift you are to our culture and, uh, and a gift to me as a friend. Thanks, folks, for listening. We hope you'll find the next podcast as good as this one. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.